This morning we are going to continue studying the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. And we come upon the next few verses for the next three weeks, each of which will have two Hebrew words for us to consider. In other words, these verses are short, and you might think they seem quite simple. Do not murder. That's this week. Do not commit adultery. That's next week. And do not steal. Two words each of the next three weeks. Short and simple. Should be five-minute sermons probably. Why are you guys laughing? It is a short scripture. There is a simplicity to it. I don't think it'll take long for you to start to think how complex and deep and how much time we should spend on each of these matters. The one before us this morning is a matter of life and death. Many people object about whether or not there's consistency in the Bible, in God himself, when he commands, do not murder, but then at the same time encourages capital punishment for breaking the Sabbath later in the law, or commands the nation of Israel to kill Canaanites when they cross over into the land of promise. Is the God of thou shall not murder a God worthy of our trust and obedience? Some of us will ask, well, does that mean that we shouldn't protect ourselves if we're being attacked in self-defense? Does that mean that we should never engage in war and be completely pacifistic in our approach to violence? Is there ever a time where taking someone's life is okay, or is it always murder? And finally, many of us, many of us might be here today, and probably all of us at some point in our lives, we've thought this, this one I'm okay with. Check this one off the box. Don't murder. Never done that one, guys. I'm good. Or perhaps you've never fully considered the whole teaching of the Bible. And maybe every single one of us here this morning are in fact guilty of murder. Short and simple, five minutes should be done, right? Or are there plenty of things that we need to consider this morning? I want to organize them into three categories. I think if we look at murder in the ancient Near East first, it might help us with some of our objections. Maybe even internally, some of you have objections about reconciling the Old Testament laws. And so we're going to consider first about ancient Near Eastern laws about murder and contrast that with 
commands in the Old Testament. Secondly, I want us to look at murder more specifically, what the word here is. We've got two words. We've got to at least look at them. So we're going to look at what this means and what it doesn't mean for a little while. We can't cover all that it means and doesn't mean. And then finally, I want us to look at murder in the teaching of the New Testament and particularly Jesus. I think if we follow that outline, we will hopefully be able to begin to address the questions that have been raised. So let's read all of the Ten Commandments in Acts chapter 20, found on page 61, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We want to first begin by contrasting these laws with the ancient Near Eastern laws found in its time. The reason I want us to do this is because I think it's important every single week as we go through the Ten Commandments that we put them in its proper context. We should not read them and quickly contrast them with modern laws because these laws were given at a certain time and place and they were given in a different language and so we're going to have to cross over into that world every time we study the Bible and you need to realize that these laws were given in a story. They were given in five books of the Bible. We're in the second of those five books. These five books have been called the law, the Torah, because Torah means law or instruction. Pentateuch means five Pentateuch, five books, the five books of Moses. So that's what we're in. We're in the five books of Moses. And if you're following along in the story, it starts in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But you need to realize that the story begins not with laws. It begins with a story. There's 69 chapters of narrative before we get to these Ten Commandments. And that narrative tells us in verse 1 of chapter 20 that God has saved this people out of slavery. 
He has already set them free. He has already delivered them, redeemed them, and saved them. And because he has done this, on the basis of that already done salvation, I would like you to live as free people in this way to be set apart from all the other peoples. And we saw in chapter 19, if you look at 19 verses 5 and 6, we've referred to this again and again, he wants to call them a kingdom of priests. The whole nation is to be a collective group of priests. That's his vision for Israel. Not just one priest who's the high priest, but a whole kingdom of priests who obey these laws to help set them apart as holy people, different from the other nations. So, are the commands of the other nations different than Israel? Did they have commands like, you shall not murder? I want to give you three examples of how these commands in the Ten Commandments, and particularly we're going to zero in on our command about murder in the ancient areas, contrasted and set Israel apart and showed how good and how advanced and how amazing God's laws were. As my dad prayed earlier, that was my dad, by the way, Steve. As he prayed earlier, God's laws are always superior to man's laws. That's the big takeaway for this first point. Or to put it in biblical language, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. I want you to think about this passage of Scripture as we go through these three observations. Keep and do these laws, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples, who when they hear of these statutes, they will say, surely, surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. Do you hear what Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 6 is saying? These laws that God is giving Israel are so good. They're so superior to all the other nations that when other nations hear about how Israel is constituted and its government is run by God's law, they will say, wow, wisdom, excellence, much better than our nation's laws. Example number one. People in general in the ancient Near East were viewed as slaves to their God, and therefore their laws had massive inequality between men and women, slaves and free men, widows and orphans, etc., etc. The strong got privilege, the weak were exploited. For example, let's say you're an Egyptian slave and you ran away from Pharaoh, you would be put to death when you were found. Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says, you shall not give up A master, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, and you shall not wrong him. One nation's law says, find the runaway slave and kill him. Israel, if you find a runaway slave that's coming to you, harbor them. Make them comfortable. Give them a place of refuge and security. I want you to be a place of refuge. Do you see the contrast? When the peoples hear laws like this, surely this is a great nation, wise and understanding. Second example. In general, the laws of ancient Near Eastern societies were way more severe. Now, some of you, if you've read the Old Testament, when you hear this, you're going to think, you're right you got to be kidding me. We just read last week 
honor your father and mother, and a rebellious son gets stoned to death. And you're telling me ancient Near Eastern societies are more severe than the Israelite laws? Yes. Yes, much more severe. In the Code of Hammurabi, if you stole something, death sentence right away. In Egyptian law, if you stole something, your ear or nose could be cut off. One set of severe laws in an ancient Near Eastern society would include dragging you behind a bull or a donkey or some form of cattle around and around as torture for stealing. The Old Testament laws in the books of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Exodus, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and he kills the animal and sells it, he will then repay five ox for an ox. And he will repay four sheep for one sheep. But if he stole the beast and the beast is still alive, whether it's an ox, a donkey, or a sheep, then he shall pay double for what he stole. Consistently, God's laws are not as severe as the surrounding nations. This is why when people hear of the statutes and laws of Israel, they will say, surely, this is a great nation. It is wise, and these are an understanding people. Third example. Almost every civilization around Israel viewed the taking of human life as a serious crime. So there is consistency. Even in Egypt, even in the Hittites, the Babylonians, if you killed somebody, it was not like, oh, well, just kill people, it's okay. But God's laws given to Israel are gigantic steps forward in the way they dealt with the issue of murder. If you were a Hittite and your wife committed adultery, then you could murder her and her adulteress and there would be no punishment. Those actions were seemed to be justified. If you lived in Mesopotamia and a master of a slave, you could murder, rape, or wound a slave with no penalty whatsoever because they were seen as property. Not human beings, just property. In Hittite laws, if you pushed someone into a fire, then you would have to hand over your son to that family, and they would kill your son for you pushing someone into a fire. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16 says, Fathers shall be put to death, shall never be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of the sins of their father. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Are you starting to grasp how just and good and righteous these laws are in a world full of bloodshed? Are they perfect in the sense that when you read them, you think, this is exactly how I want to live in our society today? Do not commit the foolish mistake that C.S. Lewis has called chronological snobbery. Jesus himself says that it was because of your hardness of heart that I had to work with you, Israel. This was not my original intention. And so, yes, I allowed divorce, but that was not the way it was from the beginning. And so it is with so many of God's laws. He's working with time and space and people and language and culture. And this is where they're at. And he is taking them leaps and bounds beyond where everyone else is in the day. The laws of Israel are superior by far. 
So before you look back at them with your chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis, like I mentioned, what he means is the uncritical acceptance of intellectual climates common to your own age. Well, of course, everything that we do here in America must be right. We've evolved and we're more modern and we're not as bloodshed thirsty as those people. The number of murders seen on television today by the time a child finishes elementary school will be over 8,000. The number of violent acts seen on TV by the age of 18 is over 200,000. Sure, yeah, we've so evolved. We're not bloodthirsty. You see how ridiculous it is sometimes when we put our heads and put our chests out, look down at other ancient civilizations and act like we've got it all together. My dad told me earlier this week as we were spending time together that a friend of his was coming to the United States or someone he knew. All they had ever seen about the United States was on television and movies. So when he got to the airport, he was like afraid of what he might see. He literally thought that America was so full of violence and sexuality and drug use and abuse that he was like scared to even come. And when he got there, the person who invited him had to like, it's not like that. And then he found out, oh, there's actually kind people here. Somebody even said, excuse me, and was polite. Don't be fooled that the nations are looking at America and saying, oh, what wise people these are. My hope is that we will start to see God's laws always have been and always will be much more superior than our ways, our laws as humans. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God the way the nations do. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for sacrifice to their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Do not be like those nations who allow it and demand child sacrifice for part of their worship. This is detestable. It is a Abominable. I got to imagine that from time to time, Egyptians and Hittites and Babylonians and surrounding ancient Near Eastern civilizations came into contact with Israelites and said, Surely, this is a great nation, wise and an understanding people. God's laws protected the weak. It gave rights to slaves and women and children and even the unborn. Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, when men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her child might come out, and this is like premature pregnancy, but if there is no harm, then the one who hit her will be fined, as will the woman's husband impose on him the fine that he deserves. And pay as the judge will determine. 
But if there is harm, then you will pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Modern readers read this passage that I just read to you about the protection of the womb and how the womb carries real human life. And they quickly just jump to verses 23 and 24 of that passage and say, yeah, we can't take any advice from this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Really? You Christians, Jews, you follow a God with those sort of standards? I think that's committing chronological snobbery. When you hear eye for an eye or tooth for tooth, one of the things you need to understand is that it may seem to you as morally outrageous, but that is the extreme extent of the punishment. It is not the punishment that must be given. It means that the life in the womb is a true human being. So if the baby in the womb dies because of a fight that you got into and somehow you knocked into the woman and the baby came out and died, then the most extreme punishment would be life for life. It wouldn't have to be life for life, but that's as far as it could go. You couldn't say, now life for your life, and then your son's life, and then we're also going to take all of your possessions. No, they're trying to distinguish and establish a matter of justice, what is right and fair. In other words, we get caught up with those verses and miss that the Bible has far surpassed our understanding of our current laws, which do not protect the unborn. The judge could never punish too severely. The punishment should match the crime, and the crime is killing a person. So it could exceed all the way to taking the life of that person. That's what this verse is saying. Do not think that just because the Bible says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that Israel was going out and killing people all over the place. They were establishing a matter of fairness and justice. So that when the peoples hear these statutes, they will say, surely, this is a great and wise nation. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and this has been a troubling point for you to consider, I hope that these comments will be helpful for maybe you to understand that there's more to the story. That there's good evidence and reason to believe that the God of the Bible is just. That his standards are good. And that his standards are way better than yours. So would you be open this morning to hearing the rest of that story? Let's move on to our second point. We've considered first what murder looks like in the ancient Near East and some of the other laws to contrast them, to see how wise and good God is. Now, secondly, I want us to just look at our text, you shall not murder. Some of you might see even in your English Standard Bibles a footnote, the ones provided in front of you have a little number three next to it. It says, the Hebrew word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. In the Hebrew language that the Bible is written, there are eight different, some say nine, but I'd say at least eight different ways the taking of human life is described in the Old Testament. So this murder here is premeditated, it's malicious in its intent, and it has to do with sometimes being careless or negligent in such a way that it leads to people's harm, what we would call 
manslaughter in today's legal terms. So this does not include every kind of taking of someone's life. It is okay at times for you to protect yourself. There's laws in the Old Testament about if a man comes into your house in the middle of the night and it's dark and you don't have electricity and you can't see him and there's nobody around, and I'm kind of filling in the details, but that's the general idea. And an altercation happens because he's a thief and he's coming in, he's trying to take something from you. You can protect yourself and you kill him. You did your self-defense. But if the sun is up and there was other opportunities for you to hopefully maneuver the situation in such a way that you don't have to take the man's life, then you might be put on trial for murder, for unnecessarily killing someone in self-defense. Even the Old Testament talks this way. So murder, when you read, thou shall not murder, you shall not murder. Some are confused because you're used to the old King James Version. It was translated, you shall not kill. Maybe you memorized it that way. All killing is not being forbidden here. God's word is not contradictory. It's using different words and different language to talk about the different nuances of these realities. So capital punishment is not included in this commandment. We saw last week, like I mentioned, if there's a rebellious son in Deuteronomy chapter 21, and he continues in that rebellion, the parents don't just pick up rocks and say, well, that's your punishment and kill him. They bring them before the judge. There is a due process. If the whole community is in agreement that this son is rebellious in such a way that it's a threat to the whole society, then the punishment is death. That capital punishment is not murder and is not being forbidden in this commandment. Similarly, war is being commanded in the Old Testament. It is not seen as murder in the same sense as what's being forbidden here. God commanded them for the sake of using Israel as a means of justice to the nations. God alone is the one who determines life and death. God alone is the one who says who should die and who shall live. Israel does not just pick up swords and say whenever they want, they can go kill people because God said it was okay before. They're getting a very clear command. You do not have the privilege and the right to determine who lives and dies. I determine that. So matters of war where God uses Israel for the sake of his divine justice is a different scenario altogether. It should not then for you and me today to then conclude, well, does that mean that we can then go to war because Israel did and God's using us as divine justice? We'll pick that answer back up in the New Testament, but no, we are not Israel. No, we are not under this constitution. We are under the New Covenant's constitution as Christians. And there is nothing in the New Covenant's constitution about us picking up swords. Do you remember when Jesus was being arrested and one of the disciples picked up a sword and cut off a guy's ear? And Jesus was like, no, this is not the way this is going to go. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, as we will see in just a minute, was showing that there's going to be a different way that Christians in the New Covenant should live. But it should be clear to you and to me that there are times that we can learn from the wisdom of the Old Testament and apply it directly to us. So homicide is sin. Don't murder someone. Suicide is murder. It's not a disease. It could be connected to depression or other psychological diseases. I'm not saying that those things need to be completely 
thrown away. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, suicide is murder. It's killing yourself, murdering yourself. As we already mentioned, abortion is murder. If you're here today and you've had an abortion, I want you to know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that there is not one sin that I will list today that is not forgivable, but you should not downplay it and just say, well, it was an operation. It was murder. It always has been and always will be murder. And as a church, we need to be clear about that, not for the sake of political votes or stances that we're trying to establish here as a church. You could be a Democrat or a Republican politically. But this is a clear teaching of moral and ethics from the Bible that abortion is murder and always has been. Deuteronomy 22.8 gives an example of what we mean by negligent behaviors. I think it's one of the more interesting and obscure laws in the Old Testament, so... Hear it out. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Which begs the question, what's a parapet? Like some kind of animal or... I mean, read the context. I think you can get it. When you build a house and you lived in the ancient Near Eastern societies and you used the roof as a time to cool and hang out in the evening, so think of it as your living room almost and... You need a roof with a railing. That's what a parapet is. If you don't have a railing and somebody accidentally falls off, they get too close to the edge, they get hurt, guess who's at fault? The one who is negligent to make their house secure. You know, there's a sense to which every single little civil law we have, even in our own communities, Palatine and Rolling Meadows, and there's these laws that you have to get signed off by the communities before you can make changes to your house. They're trying to protect and preserve life so that you don't accidentally hurt somebody. They're all rooted out of this idea in the Old Testament that life matters to God and to us. But you should understand there's a difference between an accident and negligence versus intentional killing. And this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 19. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head of the axe slips from the handle or from the hand and strikes the neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to a city of refuge and find life. So, cutting some trees, whoop, hit a guy in the head, he dies. Is that murder? No. It's an unintentional killing, not included in the Ten Commandments. There's refuge for that person to live in a city where the person's family, who would probably want to seek vengeance, they can be protected from that city of refuge. And there's a whole system of city of refuge in the Old Testament that you can read about. But hear the, the rest of the verse. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, your eye shall not pity that person but you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Do you see the difference here? The Old Testament, I think, nuances this quite well for us. It reminded me when I was reading of that passage, it reminded me of uh, Genesis chapter 4. If somebody has hatred in their heart and they're lying in wait, ready to pounce, Cain killed his brother Abel just in that manner. So it seems as if the Deuteronomy law is saying, when it's that, get rid of the evil person from among you. 
But if it's an accident, then we shouldn't put that person to death. So, so far we've seen that the ancient Near Eastern laws pale in comparison to God's law. We've seen that God is advancing the moral ethics of the day through this law and that you and I should trust in God's plan and his story of redemption that used these Mosaic laws for a temporary time. A temporary time to teach Israel how they should live and then teach the nations the wisdom and goodness of God through Israel as kingdom of priests. That all murder is complex and there's different nuances and the Old Testament is filled with that nuances so you and I should be careful from thinking about holding strict pacifistic views. It doesn't seem to be taught in the Old Testament at least. So let's make our way to the New Testament. Let's look at murder in the New Testament and in the teachings of Jesus and turn with me if you would in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And this is really important not just because it talks about murder but because I think It helps pick up the story. When you turn to Matthew chapter 5, I want us to first see verse 1. Matthew 5 verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then so begins the Sermon on the Mount. Think in your minds. Who do you know in the Bible that gave laws and established a covenant going up and down a mountain? Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's what we're studying for these last eight weeks. Moses was the one who came up and down the mountain and gave God's laws. He's the one who established and was the intercessor for the old covenant. When you read verse 1, I don't think Matthew's just telling you historical details. Well, it just so happened that they were on a mountain. And Jesus started saying things about the Ten Commandments as he sat down. You're supposed to read this from a theological lens of a whole story about how God created man in his image. He gave life to Adam in the dirt of the ground. And it says so beautifully and intimately in chapter 2, he breathed into his nostrils and gave him life. God, the giver of life, gave them a tree, a tree of life that they could eat from, symbolizing every single day God would sustain and keep their life forever. There was a second tree, though, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on that tree, If they were to grab and eat its fruit, they would be showing that they wanted to determine for themselves what was wise and good, that they're going to make laws for themselves and reject God's law. They're going to determine good and evil. And the serpent slithers in, deceives Adam and Eve. They eat of the fruit, and surely they do die. Death enters the world through that one sin, and so death has reigned since that moment. The very next story is Genesis chapter 4, where Cain kills his brother, murders him. What does life look like outside the garden? What does life look like outside of God's presence? What does it look like when man determines what's good and evil? Looks like murder. That's what it looks like. You keep reading and you get to Genesis chapter 6 and God says that it is evil and every thought is continually evil and he floods the earth. 
He starts over with Noah, and that's the scripture we read in Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9, the scripture we had read for us earlier, the very reason for why you should not murder was because God made man in his image. For in the image of God they were made. So therefore, if someone kills someone, murders someone, their life should be taken as well. Life for a life. God thinks very highly of human beings, all of them, rich and poor, male and female, white and black and yellow, and all of the different ethnicities represented in this room and around the world. We are all priests, princes, and princesses, image of God. Do you think that if you killed the president's son that that would be funny? No, it's apparently not funny, is it? You start making fun of the president's son. It's not cool here in the United States. If you kill the prince or the princess, you see the stakes are higher when you realize the dignity of the person that you're hurting. And the Bible says that every single one of you are a group of priests, princes, and princesses. Therefore, all of you have equal dignity and value. And so therefore, you should not murder. And God established those laws in Israel, but Israel, time and time again, showed that they could not keep these laws. That there was something deeper wrong with them. Something wrong with them from the inside that led to these external actions. And so the prophets started speaking of a day. A day when God would change people's hearts. When he would pour out his spirit. They spoke of a day when God would like the act of circumcision. He would cut the people off from everyone else and make them change from the inside out. And here comes Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those things. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, I mean 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus did not come onto the scene and say, I'm the new Moses, get rid of the old Moses, Get rid of the old laws. No, I am coming to fulfill them. What they originally meant to accomplish, I'm going to actually accomplish. You see, the law was trying to set apart a people, but those people ended up looking just as evil as everyone else around them. So it didn't accomplish its purpose. This is why if you read Romans chapter, really all of Romans, but you read Romans chapter 7 in particular, you'll see the law was good. The law was a very good law, especially when you compare it to the other ancient Near Eastern laws. But for whatever reason, it seemed like the law could never actually change someone. And you've got these people that are wretched people. And then in Romans 8 it says, but God did accomplish by sending his son into the earth, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus now comes on this mountain, and he is the new lawgiver. He is the new Moses who's going to fulfill the law. He's going to accomplish the law. So the law said, don't murder. And Jesus not just didn't murder. He taught us what murder is really all about. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 now, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, 
And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Up to this point in human history, all the world has ever known is sinful people murdering one another. Jesus comes in and not only tells you, okay, some of you think you're obeying the law, thou shalt not murder. But you actually have anger in your heart, which is murder. You actually insult people and look down on them. And that, my friend, is the whole point of the sixth commandment. Jesus is telling us not the commandment needs to be added to, but the full meaning that the commandment was originally given from the beginning. That when God said, thou shalt not murder, he's saying, I care about all human life, that everybody is equally dignified because they're image bearers of God, and therefore you shall not be angry with them, you shall not insult them, you shall not call them a fool, you should love and live in harmony and reconciliation with your brother. That's what I meant when God gave to Moses the law, thou shall not murder. So how many of us are feeling very confident in our righteousness this morning? How many of us are thinking, yeah, I'm doing really well on the sixth commandment. I've never murdered. Do you see that any time you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, you're breaking the sixth commandment? When you look down on, get angry with, insult others, Jesus continues in Matthew 15, 19, and says, From the evil of your heart comes thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. It's interesting that that list is kind of the Ten Commandments that we're going through right now. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus says it's from the heart. So the law in and of itself can't change the heart there's a problem. There's something more that's needed. Let's call it a savior. 1 John 3.15 was read earlier in the service, and it says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, I think that makes it clear, doesn't it? I've not broken the sixth commandment. Have you ever hated anyone? It's not that's the start of murder, and then eventually you might murder someone. Everyone who hates a brother already has broken the commandment and is a murderer, period. And probably one of the most helpful counseling passages for fights and quarrels among us is James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Where does murder come from? Your passions that are at war within you. There is something wrong inside. So when we get to the New Testament, they say the Old Testament law was good. It served its purpose. It's temporary. But we need something better. And I have good news for all of us this morning. Something better has come. 
in the person of Jesus who said, I did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it and accomplish it. He not only obeyed the law to not murder, he not only obeyed the law to not be angry and have a war within him, he lived a perfect godly life. From the time of his birth till the time of his ironic death where Jesus himself was murdered. Or have you considered that Jesus not only died a death that you deserved because you're a murderer, but that during the trial, Barabbas was brought forward and the crowd started shouting, crucify Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. We want the murderer. Oh, the irony, isn't it? And so have you and I made a similar decision again and again and again when we sin against God, when we hate others around us. Give us Barabbas. I want to side with real murderers. And I want to reject the God who gives life. That's, that's us. If you're here today and you're a Christian, it's because you've already come to the knowledge that you are a murderer in your heart, that there's a war within you, and you have decided that you would like to repent of that sin, accept the gift of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for you, and accept his murder in your place. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the great difference between you and everyone else is not that we are not murderers in our hearts, and maybe even with our hands. The great difference is that you're not admitting it yet. Confessing to God and repenting of your sin and saying, God, I cannot change my heart. I'm at war within me. Do you all remember in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, the one that I've not watched? <laughs> I have seen this scene before. I don't even know which one it's in. But do you know the scene where Gollum... And Smeagol, the same character, are having a conversation with himself about the ring. And Gollum is telling Smeagol, so it's split personality. You've all seen it, right? I'm the one that hasn't seen it. We want it. We need it. We must have the precious, Gollum says. I have no Gollum accent. I will not try. Those sneaky little hobbits. They've tricked us. They're false. No, no, Smeagol says. Not the master. You don't doubt your friends? Nobody likes you, Smeagol. Smeagol covers his ears. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Gollum says, you're a liar. You're a thief. No, no. And then there's the moment. Murderer. With only the way Gollum could say, right? Smeagol says, go away. Gollum mocks him, go away, and laughs at him. Smeagol says, I hate you, I hate you. Oh, but where would you be without me, Gollum? I've saved us, it was me. You have survived because of me. Not anymore. What did you say? The master will look after us now. We don't need you. What? Leave now and never come back. No, no. Leave now and never come back. Gollum growls, clenching his teeth, and then he shouts. Leave now, never come back. And Gollum is silent. Smeagol starts dancing and jumping and leaping. Gone, gone, gone. Smeagol is free. Is it that easy? 
I think it's, a, it's an illustration for us. The war within us that causes murder. Is that all you have to do? Go away, go away. Go away, sin. It's not that easy. The only thing I think he gets right is he says, I have a new master. You need a new master. A master that is willing to die for you. A master that's willing to be murdered for you. How are you going to deal with the anger in your heart? Is that God let that anger fall on his son, Jesus Christ. As John Stott said, before you can begin to see the cross as something done for you, you must first see it as done something by you. When Peter in Acts chapter 3, is addressing the crowd. He says, you all denied the holy and righteous one and asked for the murderer to be granted. Do you see that that is you? You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for the murderer to be granted. If you're starting to see yourself in the story, you're starting to get how anger can be transformed into amazing love because God has so loved you. If you just think it's a cute story, fictional like Lord of the Rings, or actual real life that the God of the universe who breathes life took on death. I loved in that song we sang earlier to start the service, slain by death, the God of life. Is that your new master? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful this morning that your word is good. It is superior to our thoughts, our ways, our words, superior to the United States Constitution, it's superior to our human and government laws, it is superior, it always has been and it always will be. We thank you God for your son Jesus Christ. We are thankful this morning because Jesus provides the way. He provides the way to a changed heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He provides the opportunity to create an actual group of people, a community, a nation, here on this earth that love each other in this way. God, thank you for showing us the way through Jesus. I pray that as we hear the story of Jesus week in and week out, we would see ourselves in that story. It'd grip our hearts. It'd change our minds. It'd convict us of our sin. God, I pray right now that each and every one of us this morning would not think of these Ten Commandments as the checklist to do rules, but rather see them as gifts of your grace to teach people how to live as free people who have already been set free and have already been given the power of the Holy Spirit to live in these ways. Help our unbelief, those of us who think that they could never forgive or love someone else, that they're struggling to love. And help us all to see that Jesus has already taken the first step of reconciliation with all of us by dying and being murdered. In Jesus' name, amen.